This is an ABC podcast. What you're about to hear is an unlikely love story. It's a kind of love story that's been passed around from friend to friend over the years. I'm Elizabeth Coolass. Welcome to Days Like These. And this week, reporter Melanie Tate brings us a love story. It's one of those stories that you can imagine people sighing about after they've heard it, saying things like, ah, good things come to those who wait. But the thing is, no one waited for anyone. First, meet Megan. I was just a ratbag 18-year-old university student in Brisbane. Um, I was probably not doing as much study as I should have been. I was probably spending a lot more time at the pub than I should have been. Um, But I was having the time of my life. And, yeah, I came from a very small country town and uh, my whole world was opening up before me in the big smoke in Brisbane and I was having a great time. And now, this is Leon. I was at university at Swinburne doing a graduate diploma in commercial radio. And after a decade post-school and a degree and travelling around the world, I finally realised that I'd found the thing that I wanted to do. Megan and her friend decide they want to go to Melbourne for a holiday and Megan's friend Summer says, go stay with my cousin. And they do, of course, because they're uni students, as if they have money for hotels. He was really good chat. He literally opened the door, said, come on in, made us a cup of tea and said, right, what are we going to do? And then literally planned out the holiday of our lifetime for the next uh, next two weeks. And uh, I think within half an hour of arriving, we'd basically drunk our cup of tea and then we we're at the MCG. I think it was a Collingwood Port Adelaide game. We went to the docks and went raving, which for people that are listening that don't understand, you know, Melbourne now is a fully developed Docklands precinct of apartment upon apartment upon apartment. Um, But back 22 years ago, um, there were still lots of docks and empty warehouses there where big raves would be held. And we took them to explore some of that as well. I also did go and have to see my aunt and uncle and I managed to rock up with the most giant pash rash you have ever seen where basically my entire face was covered in pash rash and uh, (laughs) I knocked on the door of my auntie's house and she's just like, what has happened to you? And I just said, Auntie Sandra, I've met a boy. (laughs) You know, I I mean, I thought... 
She was amazing. She was super smart. She'd had quite a different background from mine and was really resourceful. And, you know, in terms of me evolving at 29, I mean, a lot of the places that I was evolving to, she'd been for some time um, as someone who'd been, you know, really standing on her own two feet and um, doing her thing a long way from what had previously been her home in Collinsville in central North Queensland. Um, so, you know, there was like, there was almost a, you know, a, a maturity to her that I was only just discovering in myself. Holiday romances, they're the best, aren't they? But how many holiday romances actually last past those first few carefree weeks? Megan has a degree to finish in Queensland. And Leon, well, he's 10 years older than Megan. It's well and truly time for him to build the career he's finally settled on. He takes a job as a radio news announcer in Daniloquin, which is in rural New South Wales. And I mean really rural New South Wales, like seven and a half hours from Sydney, 16 hours from Brisbane. This is before Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, so it's not like they can start a social media romance, friend each other on Facebook, follow each other's TikTok videos. So they wrote each other letters. Long letters. Like the long chats they had in real life. Like those chats could somehow be scrawled onto page after page, delivered through the New South Wales Riverina to Sydney and then up the east coast to Brisbane and then back again. But after that, we kind of just kept making little holidays where we got to see each other. Um, I was very good friends with um, his cousin who had introduced us in the first place. And so I kind of started inviting myself to any of her family events where I thought he might be there. Um, and that they were in Kempsey, so, you know, in northern New South Wales, so between Brisbane and, uh, and Melbourne. I think he attended more of his family events than he had ever attended before. And um, I, you know, just invited myself along. I think I went to his Nana's 70th birthday party as well. <laughs> and eventually she graduated from journalism and the work began of helping her find a job in Daniloquin. And I think maybe everybody was in on it. Um, notwithstanding Megan's amazing talents as a, as a budding journalist and her ability to fight her corner. But I also think there might've been a little bit of help locally to get, um, to get, you know, this young woman, her job at the pastoral times. And so Megan moved to Dinaniloquin from Brisbane and, uh, and we started living together. It was not glamorous by any measure, uh, but it was the most incredibly, incredibly happy time. We kind of became the lower class Murdochs of Daniloquin. <laughs> he had lived there um, by himself for a little while when I arrived and there wasn't kind of much in the way of, um, you know, fancy furnishings. I remember when I arrived there, he had this um, poster up on the wall in his lounge room, which was kind of one of those, you know, old 80s kind of maybe a Foster's ad and it was a woman with no pants on and just a pair of chaps and a fishing rod kind of looking back over her shoulder and I'm like, that's got to go. Dude, that's got to go. And uh, and so, you know, I bought some nice cushions and took down the bare-bummed lady off the wall. We would literally be getting about. She'd head off to the pastoral times. I'd head off to work. We would be just carrying on, drinking, smoking, um, 
like smoking everywhere. I think back to it now. I don't know if anyone's enjoyed the pleasure of smoking in bed. Uh, it's a it's a passion that I will never know again. But my God, it was happening a lot at that point. Um, and just having a really good time, and you know, experiencing at 29, uh, you know, what it was to be in love for the first time. And we had this life where we were, you know, where we were living our first life together. He was the first, you know, boyfriend I'd ever lived with. And I think I might have been the first girlfriend he'd ever lived with. And uh, we were starting our careers. He was working at the radio station. I was working at the newspaper. There was a bit of professional rivalry going, I guess, at times. Um, I was also working at the local pub on the weekends uh, and... So again, it was just kind of throwing ourselves into this, you know, small country town life, going to the Daniloquin Ute Muster, spending time out on the river, making friends, going to the pub, um, you know, doing all the kind of general things you do in a small town. It was really good fun. So it's dreamland in Daniloquin. All pubs and smokes and chats and fishing and fun. When Leon comes home this one, Arvo, with some news... He said, I've got the most amazing news ever. I've got my dream job at the ABC and it's in Horsham. There would be goats, there'd be chickens, um, there may be a cow for milking. There'd be, you know, a river nearby in which I would fish um, and it it would all be happening around me. Um, So that was the rural vision. I was 21 at that point. Leon was 31 and Leon had kind of done his you know, great adventures overseas and his big international travels and he'd he'd had that life and he'd moved home and and now where the conversation was going was Leon was thinking about maybe having a really nice vegetable garden and some goats and maybe some chickens and having come from a small country town and spent most of my life in a small country town, I didn't want goats and chickens in a vegetable garden. I wanted kind of bright lights of the city and bars and nightclubs and excitement and parties. And that was really the point for us where we realised that we both just wanted very, very different things. And I just said, I am not moving to Horsham. (laughs) It was such a sad breakup. It was a sad breakup um, because it's always sad to not have someone who you love so much in your daily life and you you develop a routine and a life that really fits in around somebody else and when you take that other person away, you kind of flounder for a little bit trying to figure out who you are without them and how your life goes without them. But... It was easier in the sense that I knew personally for me that it was the right decision. I had real plans for what I wanted to do when I was 21 and it was to go and explore the world and I just really felt that that was the right decision for me. And Leon really felt that it was the right decision for him to follow kind of his broadcasting dreams. For Leon, the reality of the breakup didn't sink in until a few months later He was high on having found his dream job at the ABC in Horsham and he was out at every council meeting across the district, making contacts, finding stories. And then he went to Melbourne for a weekend and saw Megan and everything, everything falls apart. It was so Monday morning, ABC Western Victoria, and I I opened the microphone to broadcast and the reality was that Megan could no longer listen 
to the radio. While she'd been in Daniloquin and I'd been in Horsham, she could turn on the radio. I knew that at the farthest part of the transmission signal, Megan had always been there even after we'd broken up. And I woke up on that morning and went on air and I knew that she was outside of that, the, the, the faintest, you know, waves of sound um, couldn't reach her where she'd gone to. And I think I may even have said on air, I am a train wreck of emotion right now. <laughs> Can you imagine your breakfast presenter, like coughing up their guts on air? It was really, I was just flat. A year goes by. Two years. Three years. Quinn and I worked as a um, media advisor in the Queensland government, and I did that for a number of years. I was going out with a girl in Darwin for whom I felt really strong feelings. I actually had another partner at that stage. I'm not taking that job. So we pulled up in Mexico and um, worked a bit more. And uh, I got to London and I was staying on the floor of a friend's place. And I thought, gosh, I don't, I don't want this to be over yet. Megan spends five years in London. And then homesickness. You know what it's like. It really starts to kick in after a while. My siblings were having babies and I wanted to be closer to my nieces and nephews. Um, I just really felt this kind of pull to come back to Australia and to be closer um, to, you know, some of my family and friends here. And then there's a perfect reason to make the trip back home. A wedding of Megan's good friend Summer. Yes, Leon's cousin Summer. The you should stay with my cousin Summer. This is how you know that you really feel something for someone. I remember when I got invited to my cousin's wedding and I knew that Megan would be a bridesmaid. I and it feels embarrassing to say this, I literally went into training. I will never forget. (laughs) I even remember one night in Darwin where I'd been out and had five beers, but on my training program, it was like, run, you'll be in Brisbane in three weeks. And I will never forget going on a 5K run in sweltering heat with five beers inside me because that was part of my commitment to hitting peak hotness for when I saw my first love again. Like, it was incredibly... (laughs) Daggy, but that was what I still felt. I remember catching Leon's eye as I walked down the aisle um, as a bridesmaid and I saw him in the, um, in the crowd and we kind of, you know, winked hello at each other. At the wedding, Megan was there, bridesmaid to my cousin, and looked so incredibly beautiful that it hurt me to look at her. And I didn't want to make a dick of myself at the wedding. And I didn't want, like, it's, you know, she's a bridesmaid. It's about my cousin. It couldn't be about me. It wasn't the right time to lay it on the line. It wasn't the right night to talk about, you know, it just, I couldn't be involved beyond being a good cousin, but just had this incredible aching for the woman that was standing beside the bride. And I went at one point in the wedding, it was on a little island, And literally at one point at the night, it got too much for me and I just went and removed myself from the wedding and went and laid down on the beach until it was time for the ferry to take everybody home because I didn't want to make, you know, I didn't want to put myself or anyone else in a position where it got got awkward. Like that was the level, the training that had gone into heading peak hotness and then the 
and the, just the feelings that I can still remember so clearly about how I felt, what I wanted to say, what, I mean, just the, wasn't just the lust, it was like this, this aching for the person that you could see at the wedding and being so amazing. Yet despite some really big feelings, nothing happens. Megan goes back to Brisbane to start her post-London life. Leon, he goes back to Darwin. Five years later, and I'd been offered and accepted a job in Tasmania to be the new morning's presenter. And one day I'm at a pub in North Hobart and I'm sitting at the bar and I'm having a beer and I'm really on my own. I'm finding my way. I'm doing all of the things that, that you do when you start in a new job, going to all the meetings, meeting all the people, trying to understand the landscape and doing it alone. And I'm single and I'm a little bit lonely. And I walked outside and I found Megan's number from years ago and I called So it just came up as an unknown number. So he's lucky I answered it in the first place. And uh, it was Leon. And he said, hey, it's Leon. And I said, it's really lovely to hear from you. And he said, come down and see me in Hobart. Megan said, hmm, I'm going to think about that. I'll call you back and hang up the phone. Uh, I didn't know about going to Hobart, to be honest. I wasn't sure at that point if... um, if it was a good idea to kind of look backwards in life and 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 go back to an old romance. I always really kind of held Leon very close in my heart and I, I loved him dearly still, but I wasn't looking backwards. I felt like I'd kind of just gotten life on track and I had a job and I was getting everything together. I wasn't thinking about returning to something from the past. And she gathered a coven of friends or a posse of friends and they got the appropriate amount of white wine to the party. See, I was definitely erring on the side of not going. I don't know, like, hooking up with an ex in Tasmania was, I don't know, pretty far down my list of, you know, my possible futures. And they all met and they talked about whether or not it would be a good idea. If I was going anywhere, you know, I was thinking about New York or Berlin or possibly even Istanbul. That's where I thought, you know, my my immediate future was really heading, not um, hooking up with an ex in, in Hobart. And so the next day Megan calls me back and she says, I am free at Easter. Can I come down then? And if you thought the amount of training that I'd done prior to going to that wedding was high, you have never seen anything like the kettlebell intensity that was getting thrown around in the lead up to that reconnection. On the plane trip, I was so nervous. Actually, I think that was the point where I, I, you know, realised that I was doing something that was potentially a big decision in my life. Uh, before that point, I was just thinking about having a nice weekend in Hobart and playing it casual. But I, on the plane trip, I was really, really nervous. And I have to say, I was really, really nervous that point where you come out of the gates and you're looking for somebody in the crowd. I just remember kind of spotting his smiling face and just kind of immediately relaxing. And I don't think it was that many minutes before I realised that it would be that we were both really happy to see each other. 
that we were both going to enjoy each other's company, that we're both looking forward to having a good time. So we're up until five o'clock in the morning and then, you know, at some point you need to go to sleep and he had made me a very nice bed in the spare room so we said goodnight and I went to bed in the spare room and then uh, we got up the next day and he obviously had all the sights in Tassie planned. I, this is typical journo. Like, I thought, oh, Megan's coming. She'll want to understand the Tasmanian forestry story, believe it or not, right? So I drive her out, out to a forest coop and show her, like, a Clearfeld coop and then I show her a regrowth coop and then I show her some old growth native forest. Like, seriously, the, what was I thinking? Um... I don't know. I guess it was interesting. Tasmanian forestry policy is very fraught. Um, Maybe a winery would have been a better choice, but here we are. And then we went out to dinner and we went out to a restaurant that's really well known in the centre of Hobart in Salamanca Square. There came a point, we'd spent so much time talking about other people, people that we might have known in common, people for whom we might have, you know, cared, my sister, you know, her brother and sisters... Um, and their children and their what they were doing and their hopes and their dreams. And at one point we went out the front to have a smoke and I just made a decision to lay it on the line. And so we'd literally been back and together for, you know, the first time in five years in, for 24 hours. And I remember looking at her and saying, look, buckle up for this. But there's something that I want to say. And he said, I've never loved anyone like I've loved you and I need you to know that because, you know, this is my shot and I to to have that again. And so I'm laying it all out on the table right now and I'm asking you if, you know, you want to get back together. Did these two crazy kids make it? So now here we are. We're still in, in Hobart. Hey, Philly Vanilli, what did you do in, at your school today? Uh, did weights. You did weights? <laughs> <laughs> she pumped some iron, mate. <laughs> we did a <laughs> We have two beautiful children who are aged uh, six and four. There's not as many late nights <laughs> talking by the fire, I can tell you. We'd, we're a bit more tired these days uh, but we're really really happy and it's a beautiful very fortunate life that we have carved ourselves down here and uh, and I feel really lucky that he's my partner and and we still have really great times together we still have so much to talk about and we're having a really nice time we've even bought a house and maybe even a caravan <laughs> Today's story was reported by Melanie Tate. Thanks for listening to Days Like These. If you've got a story to share with us, please get in touch. You can send us a voice memo or an email. Our address is dayslikethese at abc.net.au. Or you can find me, Elizabeth Kulas, on Instagram or Twitter. Also, follow Days Like These on the ABC Listen app or your favourite podcast app so that you never miss an episode. And while you're there, leave us a rating and a review. We love hearing what you think and it helps new people find the show. Days Like These is hosted by me, Elizabeth Coolass. This episode was reported by Melanie Tate. And it was made on the lands of the Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Gadigal peoples. Sound design by Melanie Tate and Isabella Tropiano. The supervising producer was Sophie Townsend. 
and our brilliant executive producers are Tom Wright and Ian Walker. Our theme song is Yeah Nah by the Gooch Palms, courtesy of Ratbag Records and BMG. See you next time. Days Like These, a soldier in China's People's Liberation Army discovers an Australian radio station and a song that opens up his world. It's, a, it's a, the first time you know there's something differently, totally different from the revolution songs and you, you never thought about that there's this kind of a soft music existed. We didn't even know there's uh, romantic things happening in the world. That's on the next episode of Days Like These, out next week. And in the meantime, why not take a listen to another ABC podcast? Like this one. Stand by. 
from the team that brought you Finding Drago. This is Finding Desperado. I'm Cameron James. I'm a comedian and a podcaster, and along with my best friend Alexi Toliopoulos, I'm a critically acclaimed investigative journalist for the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. (laughs) Welcome to a new mystery. And just like the last one, it all begins with a book. The 2005 edition of the Guinness World Records. Home to the most outstanding and amazing feats of human achievement imaginable. From the world's biggest pumpkins... To that lady with those ginormous bulging eyeballs. After skimming through this glorious golden tome, one record really jumped out at us as extremely strange. A record held by a man claiming to be the world's youngest filmmaker. A record that we believe is fake. And no, it is not spurred by jealousy whatsoever. This is an honest search. (laughs) Our search for this mysterious director and his world record winning film led us on a bizarre globe-trotting journey across Europe into the underground world of VHS horror movies and, of course... All over Google.com. Pseudologica Fantastica. A unique and multi-talented light being. He's not normal. I do feel like I was kind of uh, took. Ego or delusion or just BS. Not bothered if it is or isn't true. There is some energy here. This is a story about trickery, lost films, famous frauds, and possibly fake. Guinness World Records. This is Finding Desperado. Coming very soon. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.